Mark 7, verses 1 to 23. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? instead of eating their food with defiled hands. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he'd left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. We pray that God will bless us as we study that a little bit later. Well, do have the passage in Mark 7 in front of you. It's page 1010, if you had a church Bible. And I want to start this morning by looking at a question that was asked of Jesus in verse 5. I think really the question is, why don't you follow our traditions? That's the question. So verse 5 of Mark 7. The Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus... Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? Why don't you follow our traditions? Was it a valid question? Well, the disciples were Jews. Jesus is a Jew. 
We know that he was the chosen one of the Jews. That's what Messiah or Christ means, the chosen special one of the Jews. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, or scribes, they'd spotted that the disciples weren't very good at following the Jewish traditions. So they really were asking, are you good Jews? And I think asking about that was probably a valid question. But the Pharisees made the focus of their question, the traditions, rather than Jesus' faith, his theology, his relationship with God. They didn't ask, "Uh, uh, Jesus, can you help us understand how you have relationship with God without the need for all of the washing and other holy rituals? They didn't ask that. They actually asked, why don't you follow our rules? Why don't you follow our traditions? So what were these traditions that they were so focused on? Were they good traditions or silly ones, bad ones? Because tradition, the definition is, a long-established custom or belief that's been passed on from generation one to another, generation to generation. And I believe that there are good traditions And there are silly ones, bad ones. So the Lord's Supper, communion, that is a tradition. We stop and we remember Jesus Christ's sacrifice. We break some bread to represent Jesus' body broken for us. We drink some red grape juice or red wine to think about his blood poured out for us. It's a tradition, but it's a good one. It helps us remember something. It's important. On the other hand, it's become a tradition over the years that before a man gets married, he has a stag night or a stag weekend or a stag fortnight in some cases. Depends how much money you've got. And I would say it's a bad one, that tradition. You take a groom out just before his wedding. You get him so drunk that he passes out or vomits or both that he embarrasses himself that he takes on dangerous, illegal, or immoral challenges. It's not really a good tradition when you think about it. He's about to commit the rest of his life publicly to one woman, and you take him out and try and destroy him for one night? Very odd tradition. The wedding ceremony itself is a tradition too, and it's quite a good one in some ways. It's publicly celebrating love. It's recognizing a new family unit being created. But the problem with tradition is not usually where it starts and what it means to begin with. The problem is the Chinese whisper effect. See, you know the game Chinese whispers. It starts with a little phrase whispered in someone's ear. And the message has got to get communicated around the worm in the first person tells the second what they think they heard. And the second tells the third what they think they heard. By the time you get to the tenth person, the message is probably a little bit corrupted, has been changed slightly, because they haven't quite heard it, haven't quite got the point, haven't quite passed on the message correctly. It's the same with the tradition. Each generation adds to the custom, and the tradition, the custom gets tatty. So I think a wedding ceremony is very good. 
But having to spend between 10 and 20,000 pounds on one day is not really. Why do we make people do it? I think letting people drive off into the distance in a car together as a unit, that's a good thing. But why do we make them hire old, slow, cold cars? Why is that tradition? Paying thousands of pounds for a new dress that you're only going to wear once, or hundreds of pounds on suits that you will never see again because you only hire them. Why do we do that? It doesn't make sense for a new couple starting a new family to spend all their money on one day. It's all the extras that detract from the meaning of that one day. It's a celebration of God's good gift of love and companionship. And we make it about one day. And how much money can you spend? And humans are brilliant at this. Absolutely brilliant at taking a good tradition and making it tatty. Christmas, it's a great tradition to remember the birth of Jesus. But Christmas is often about feeding yourself so that your belt doesn't fit. It's about gluttony. It's about alcohol. It's about chopping down trees and letting them die in your living room. It's about fat men in red suits. It's about thousands of pounds spent on plastic gifts that will be forgotten or broken by February. Why have we added so much irrelevant stuff? That's what we do. It's Chinese whispers effect. So what was the original custom, and what was the Chinese whisper effect in these verses? What's going on in Mark 7? Well, God had told his people to recognize that they were separate as a nation, the Israelites. They were separate from the rest of the nations. The rest of the nations became known as the Gentiles. And God had chosen the nation of Israel on one hand, and he'd asked that, he, that they keep themselves separate from the other nations so that they could focus on worshiping God correctly. He didn't want them, his people, to be tempted to start following the other nations who were not following God. The Israelites were chosen. They were to set themselves apart and be holy and different, not tainted by the sins of other nations. But over time, the elders of the Israelites had added bits to that command of God. They decided that all Gentiles should um, overhear they should all be considered totally unclean. They decided that you should have to wash yourself if you've been near them. That's the best way to keep yourself separate, just kind of wash yourself all the time that you'd been near them, because the Gentiles were dirty people. They also decided you had to wash your pots as well every time you ate, just in case a Gentile had sneezed on it or something. You might have noticed in the small print right at the bottom of uh, this chapter that some early manuscripts said they washed their dining couches too. Before they'd eat, they'd scrub the sofa just in case a Gentile had sat on it. Or just in case their coat had touched the Gentile outside and then their coat touched the sofa and, oh, everything's dirty. Now, we've got to be clean. That wouldn't make things safe to eat. God had asked his people to be set apart from the world, to be different, 
to be holy, to not get involved in the sins of the world. Any washing that was commanded was so that they remembered he'd asked them to be committed to him and not to be tempted to become like the world. It wasn't a hygiene and health and safety thing. They weren't here trying to stop the spread of an infectious disease. It was just added baggage. And the washing couldn't actually wash away the dirt of the world, as we'll see in a bit. And what's Jesus' response to this question? Why don't you follow our traditions? Well, in verse 6, he says, You hypocrites. You hypocrites. Verse 6 says, He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. He looked at those Pharisees who were basically asking him, why aren't you good Jews? And he called them hypocrites. How dare they ask him and his disciples about how good they were at being Jews, at being God's people. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law at that time, they were the worst followers of God. They tried to look like they were following God by wearing a mask, as Dav had shown the children. That's what hypocrite means, a mask wearer. They tried to act the part. They put on the mask. They tried to look proper and holy. But it was all a mask. It was all in vain. It was all just man-made religion. The problem Jesus had with the Pharisees was that their worship was perfunctory. For those of you thinking, I haven't used that word before, perfunctory, it means pretend, it means without real intent, it means going through the motions. And the problem with perfunctory worship is it looks like worship, it sounds and smells like worship, but Jesus says it's in vain, it's not worship. How can that be? How can worship be in vain? If you said the right things, if you're doing the right actions, how can it be in vain? Surely God should be pleased that I'm saying the right things and doing some of the right things. Well, here, what they were doing and what they were saying was done for their own benefit, not to give worth to God. To worship is to give glory to God, to say, you are worth our attention and praise. And here, they were doing things that focused on themselves for their own benefit. The Jews were washing so regularly so that they were scrubbing away those germs of the dirty Gentiles because it made them feel special. It wasn't for God's benefit. It made them feel special. They felt important. We're over here and we're clean. and The Gentiles are dirty. They looked down on those Gentiles They knew that they themselves were sinners, but they looked down on the Gentiles and thought, well, at least we're not that dirty. We wash. They thought, we can wash off the dirty Gentile ways. We can be a good Jew at the end of the day if we just wash. They thought, I'm better than the rest of the world. And the washing was about 
conning themselves and showing everyone else how special the Jews thought they were. It was about them getting the both, best of both worlds, really. They could go out in the day and live with the Gentiles. They could go to the Gentile market. They could get on with their Gentile friends. They could make money from them. They could even live like them. And they'd come in and wash their hands, and they got rid of that, and now they were good Jews again. Quick wash, and they were back in God's good books. They wanted to be Gentile during the day, and then good Jewish boys when it came to dinner time. The washing was all for them. And Jesus said that it was one of many things they did that looked like worship, but was not. You might have spotted in verse 13, Jesus says, You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and you do many things like that. He went into detail about a specific example of them honoring their father and mother and how they found a tradition that helped them feel good, feel like good Jewish boys. It's in verses 9 to 12, but at the end Jesus says, you do many things like that. The washing thing, it's just one example. They're not giving gifts to your parents because you declare it a gift for God. Corban, it's another example. There were plenty of ways that they were following traditions And it was perfunctory, going through the motion, worship. And perfunctory worship is not worship. It doesn't give worth to God. So as we read, we need to think, why did Mark record this little conversation? Why is this here? What's it good for for us for? All scripture is useful for us. How is this useful? Well, I think this little section is a warning to the church. Verse 6 to 8, where Jesus says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. He says, you have let go of the commands of God, and you're holding on to human traditions. And in verse 13, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. You do many things like that. Jesus was directing these things at the Pharisees, not the church. But the Jews were God's special people who had become perfunctory. This was an alarm bell for the Jews. And it's an alarm bell for Christians. We are human like them. We can just as easily become traditional Christians as they were traditional Jews. They were thinking, have I been a good Jewish boy by washing today? We can think the same things. Have I been a good Christian today? What about our traditions as Christians? Some people look like, and there's lots of us here this morning who look like we're following God. We look like we want to honor him. We understand the world is dirty. We understand that keeping ourselves from sin is important. We set up a defense around ourselves. We set up a set of rules. Sometimes we don't write them down like the Jews did, but we have our own rules. Sometimes we do write them down. We can get stricter and stricter and stricter with our basis of faith and put more things in it because we need to keep ourselves from everybody else. Only if we do it exactly this way in our statement of faith are we real Christians. 
We can add to the word of God. It starts, well, we're wanting to protect ourselves from the temptation to be corrupted. That's a good thing. But too often we can keep ourselves in isolation so that we don't fall into sin, but so that we don't meet the world, so that we don't tell them about Jesus. We become a cult. That so often happens. We don't let people in. We don't communicate with the rest of the church because we've got our own traditions and our own way of doing it, and our way must be the best way. Good ideas at the beginning can become habits. And habits can be good. Brushing your teeth every night, that's a good habit. But habits can be bad. The tradition, the ritual, can become the important thing, and not the thing it was pointing to, not the thing it was teaching you, not the thing it reminded you of. We're all able to fall into this trap. I'm going to list some good habits that can become traditions. Maybe you, for the last 10 years, have sat down every January and started the same Bible reading in a year plan. Maybe you have. That's good. Read the Bible regularly. But if you've done it 10 years in a row the same way, has it become a tradition and you're just reading the Bible, not studying it? Are you just reading the two chapters to tick it off? Feeling good about yourself? I've ticked it off today. I'm going to read the whole Bible again this year. Perhaps you've got into a tradition of always reading the Bible at 6 a.m. Maybe that's good for you. 6 a.m. is a good time. You're nice and alert. I am not. Maybe you are. But does it become a tradition? You don't read the Bible the rest of the day. You only do it at 6 a.m. You don't think about it the rest of the day because you've ticked it off. At 6 a.m. Has a good habit become a tradition? Do we always do Christianity Explored courses here because we've always done them? Is it still the best resource? We're just doing it because it's tradition. Yeah, we do that. Word alive. Do we always go because we always go? Even our church calendar, having services at 10.30 on a Sunday and Six, as well, we shouldn't change that. That's what we do. That's good. We should always have Tuesday jolly tots. We should have midweek meetings. We should have origin. God doesn't need regular meetings. He doesn't take a register. He doesn't do ritual in this way. He wants to know, are you serving him in those things? What day it's on, jolly tots, whether we do it, that's not important. It's are we serving him in what we are doing. So we need to regularly as a church audit the things we do as part of our religion. Because over time, some of the things we do might actually just be baggage that we just do. We need to be as lightweight and as nimble as possible as followers of Jesus. At any time, he could ask us to spread the gospel anywhere. But are we carrying around all of Binfield Free Church's traditions or all of your own traditions of how you do Christianity? We need to regularly as individuals say, is this thing going to Word Alive this year or doing Jolly Tots again this term? Is it allowing me to glorify God and worship him? 
We need to do that as individuals. We need to do it as a church. Does this activity, does this Sunday morning service help us to know Jesus better and make him known? We need to check ourselves. It's a good habit to do an audit. Because one, we'll stop wasting time on the things that don't help us. Two, we'll keep focused on the main thing, glorifying God, obeying him, becoming more like him. And three, if you ask yourself the question, why do we always do Holiday Bible Club every year? Why do we always do that? Is that a tradition? If you ask yourself the question, often you'll be able to answer, because it helps me glorify God and I tell people about Jesus. That's why I do it. That's why we do it. That's why we say that's a good tradition. Very often you'll be able to say, yes, I've looked at that thing I do, and yes, I'm going to keep doing it, because that glorifies God. And it will give you a new energy to keep doing those activities, to keep saying, that's not a bad tradition, that's a good way of me serving Christ's kingdom. We need to ask ourselves two questions today. Are we just going through the motions? One question, that's a personal one. Are you just going through the motions? Have you come here this morning because you always have your alarm go off on a Sunday morning at the same time and you arrive here just before 10.30 and you sit down and you have a listen and you sing some songs? It's all tradition. Are you just going through the motions? And you need to do an audit of yourself. What are my traditions? What is not helping me serve God? I just do it. Because those questions should help you get back on track following the Savior and dedicating to all your time to things that matter eternally. So do an audit. Check your traditions. Ask, why do I do it that way? What was the point of it in the first place? If you're reading the Bible in the year, good. But remember why you started. It wasn't to tick that off every morning. It was to learn more about God. Remind yourself of why. Don't let it become a bad, boring, tick-box habit. So now back to the passage in the second part. We've sort of covered verses 1 to 13 here. But what happens next? Well, Jesus takes this opportunity to gather together all the crowds. It's verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Come, listen to me. Everyone, get together. Come on. Come and understand this. He's going to teach them about the heart of the human problem. And at the heart of the human problem is the human heart. You see, the Jews for so long had understood that relationship with God was the purpose of life. Humans were created to know God and enjoy him and worship him. Some very wise men said hundreds of years ago that the chief end of man, or the main purpose of humans, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We exist to show how good God is and to enjoy him. We're created to have a relationship with our creator, to live life with the amazing God who gave us life. 
And the Jews realized that humans had spoiled that relationship by doing everything they could to live life on their own without God. The Jews got this. They knew that people were not listening to him, not respecting God, not doing life his way, doing it their own way. The Jews knew that rebellion against God, the God who made us, is sin. And sin brought death and pain into the world. And now there are wars, and there are crimes, and there is pain, there's disease, and it's all because humans chose to do life without God. Said no thanks to God. God's world was perfect when he made it. All humans had to do was listen to him, and it would stay perfect. Live the way he designed life, it would all be good. But we all chose our own way. We all try and be in charge of our own life. And God can't let sinners stay around forever, because sinners ruin the world. Sinners hurt each other, sinners spoil everything, and so death is the consequence. If people stay sinful and selfish, they will die because God can't let their rebellion go on forever. He can't let them cause pain and hurt to the world forever. But God decided not just to wipe out all humans who are sinful, which is all humans, God wanted humans to be around. He wanted them to glorify him. He made us to enjoy him forever. God just had to do something to fix the sin problem. So when God chose the Israelites to be his people, to begin that process of fixing this sin problem, they realized that he wanted to start a new humanity where his people loved him and his people didn't sin. That's what he was doing when he chose the people of Israel. He wanted to make everything enjoyable and good again. The Jews understood this, and they thought what they needed to do was make sure they did everything to avoid the sins of the world. Well, that's true, but it wasn't quite right. It wasn't just avoiding the sins of the world that was the solution. So the Jews, if one nation sacrificed children to their gods, they looked at it and thought, no, that's rubbish, we won't do that, we'll stay away from them. If another nation were liars and cheats and were corrupt, the Jews thought, we'll stay away from them too, we won't trade or do business with them. The Jews began to think that sin was something that other nations did and they could keep themselves separate. If they just stayed away from those other nations and just washed off that sin... Wash off that sin that might have been transferred when they touched a Gentile. Then God would be pleased with them. Then the problem's gone. Then they'd be good Jews. And Jesus here gathers everyone together because he's got to correct their thinking. Being around sinners is not what makes you dirty. Jesus was constantly around sinners. Cheating tax collectors... Immoral women. It's all, all through the gospel. Jesus didn't mind being around sinners. It didn't make him dirty. 
Being around sinners doesn't make you a sinner. The sins of your neighbors, the sins on the TV, doesn't make you a sinner. You're already a sinner. Sin is already in your heart. Rebellion against God is in all of our hearts. If I talk with a friend who's had an affair, doesn't mean I've had an affair, doesn't make me unclean in God's eyes. If I eat dinner at a tax fraud's house, doesn't make me a tax fraud, doesn't make me unclean in God's eyes. If I employ uh, an ex-offender at work, it doesn't mean I'm now a convict. External sin does not make me a sinner. What makes me a sinner? And George a sinner. And Julia a sinner. And Ali a sinner. What makes us a sinner is that our hearts don't want to love God. They want to disobey. We are born with faulty hearts that are selfish and rebellious. And every day our heart makes selfish, rebellious choices. That's what makes us A sinner. It's already inside. Don't worry about the outside. You've already got the disease. If I talk to a liar, it doesn't make me a sinner. But when those lies come out of my mouth, because I've thought them in my mind and I've felt them in my heart, I know that I'm a sinner. It wasn't the liar that put it there. It was already there. It was waiting to come out. And in Mark 7, Jesus says in verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Keeping yourself from sin as much as you can on the outside, that is a good thing. The more sin you see, the more it does corrupt you. But the sin's already inside. Keeping away from sinners won't do enough. It's already in there. Your heart is already black. And the Jews could not fix this black heart problem with washing. Washing was not going to work. It didn't matter how many times they scrubbed their hands or their pots or their dining couches. It was not going to fix their heart. How can we be washed in our heart? How can you wash the inside? Well, in Titus 3, Paul writes to his friend Titus, And he says, at one time, we too were foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, not because we'd washed our hands enough, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal 
by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. So that having been justified, having been declared clean by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Paul said it wasn't anything you did that washed you, Titus. It wasn't anything that you did, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy, we can be washed. We can be saved by being given a new heart by Jesus. <coughs> Same thing is taught us in, in one of John's letters, and, uh, in the letter to the Corinthians. Let me read these passages. So 1 Corinthians 1, verses 7 to 9. I'm going to pick up verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim to be clean, we're lying. We're hypocrites. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will purify, wash us pure, purify us from all unrighteousness. How will he purify us from all unrighteousness, you might ask? Well, actually, in verse 7, I skipped of 1 John 1. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. You see, what the Jews had missed in all of their tradition was it wasn't the washing that made them clean. It was the fact they were sacrificing a life. There was death in their commands, in their rituals. Lambs were slaughtered because the death took away their sin. The death of a lamb in that case, but really ultimately the death of Christ, was the punishment. The only way to remove sin from someone is to kill them. There had to be death. So the Jews sacrificed lambs, and Jesus sacrificed himself once for all to give his own body as the death, the punishment, the penalty that needed paying. And it's his blood that then purifies us from all sin. We can be clean, we can be forgiven because of Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11, it says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what some of you were. But you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So this passage here in Mark 7 this morning teaches us two things. If we are a Christian, it teaches you to look at your traditions. It's an alarm bell for you. What am I doing that worships God? What am I doing that is just for my own tick box purposes? What is in vain? What is there that is just tradition? Because you need to be using your energy to worship him, to glorify him, to serve him. 
And this passage, for those who haven't yet committed their lives to Jesus, teaches you that you cannot wash yourself clean. You cannot ever make yourself right with God. There is nothing you can do that makes you a good Christian boy or girl. But Jesus gave his life for you. Christ Jesus died on the cross, giving everything he had, pouring out his blood and his life for you, so that the punishment is paid, and if you ask Jesus for forgiveness, and if you trust in his sacrifice, you can be washed clean. You can be God's child. You can have relationship with him again. 